Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 8th and a very warm afternoon in San Francisco, idyllic in many ways, although I'm not sure that the weather is idyllic in other ways. Um, seems as if the headlines in the United States are dominated implicitly or explicitly by water. Either we have too much or not enough. In California, um, we have another heat wave expected. Lots of warnings about that. Um, the wildfire season uh, apparently is far from over, which is terrifying given that this has been one of the worst wildfire seasons in history. Of course, you need water to put the fires out. And more than anything else, we have so many fires because of the drought, because we don't have enough water. Uh, it's an economic issue as well. The LA Times leads this morning uh, with a piece about how the wildfires have been compounded by the irresponsibility uh, of American industrial corporations. Surprise, surprise. Um, and uh, we just don't have enough water in, 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 in California. The Times, uh, the LA Times also reports on the vanishing of the snow in Mount Shasta, which has gone together with, um, with this epidemic of wildfires. Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, we have too much water. We have uh, more uh, severe storms uh, like the, the one we had last week, uh, Ida, which flooded many eastern cities, many dramatic uh, uh, pictures, photographs, videos of that. And Hurricane Larry is set now to sideswipe Bermuda before striking Newfoundland. So the weather's in the news and particularly water. So it's a good time to talk about water. There's a new book out, a fascinating new book with a wonderful title, Water, a Biography. It's by a London-based, um, I don't know what you would call him, a, a writer on the environment, very experienced. He worked for McKinsey. He worked for the Nature Conservancy and he's written this fascinating book. Uh, his name is Giulio uh, Bocelletti. And uh, he. I'm thrilled that he's uh, talking to us today from London. Uh, Julia, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here. Um, my introduction, I, I asked for probably from your point of view, was a little facile. But uh, weather is in the news now. Weather is politics. And that's the heart of your book as well, isn't it? That water is less of a technological issue and more of a political one. Is that the core message of your biography of water? That's right. That's right, Andrew. I think, uh, I think it's the heart of it is that, um, you know, for a long time, certainly, you know, the current generation, particularly in developed countries, has lived for a long time under the impression that water is just some technical issue, something that somebody takes care of somewhere, but that we don't have to worry about. Neither you nor I typically have to wade a river to go out to work. Um, you know, our experience of water collectively is one of taps and showers and shower heads and the likes, right? And uh, the events that you were referring to at the opening of the program reflect the fact that in reality, behind the walls, behind the taps, behind the dams and levees that protect us, there's this powerful force, this powerful environmental force that, uh, that we've sort of kept at bay for a while, but now is sort of coming um, coming back and, and really 
wreaking havoc on our lives. And it shows us that the questions that we have to answer vis-a-vis -vis water are not really technical questions, but they're political questions. And they're political questions about, you know, what do we want our landscape to look like? Who should live where? How much money should we be spending to ensuring our security? Who should benefit from those expenditures? And so forth and so on. And so the, the thesis of the, the book and the purpose of the book is to demonstrate through a an analysis of history that water is the ultimate political issue. It needs to be treated as a political issue. It's important that people think about water in terms of their citizenship. Um, and I hope that the story of water and the history of water is a good way of, of illustrating that and giving people the words and the, and the concepts to have a conversation about water. Uh... It doesn't take a lot of imagination to guess, Giulio, uh, Bocelletti, that you're from Italy. Uh, do you think that the history of the Republic, the long history, the tradition, the heritage of Respublica in Italy, is that somehow um, influencing your thinking about books and uh, this book on water? Because the core political argument in, in your book is this uh, intimacy between the history of the Republic and the history of water. Uh, is right. this particularly informed because of um, Italy's central role in the history of republics? It, it is to some extent, although, you know, in truth, I think that the most salient Republican legacy uh, for the story of water today, the, the one that m most people will, uh, you know, will experience directly is the, actually the American one, the American Republic, right? I mean, in many ways, the American Republic is the model republic of the modern age. But indeed, you know, Italy, my my own sort of country of origin, has contributed a lot to the to the. Um, the sort of history of Republican thought, starting obviously with the, the first and longest Republic, the, the Roman Republic. I was born in Italy, but I can't claim any particular direct affiliation with the Roman state. But then, of course, also the humanists and, and Renaissance philosophers that reintroduced ideas of Republicanism, uh, you know, in the at the end of the Middle Ages, Machiavelli and, and, and others. And yeah, so I'd be curious idea, uh, what, yeah. what Machiavelli... I don't think Machiavelli ever wrote about water, but it would be interesting... Well, interestingly, you know, he did um, tangentially. I mean, first of all, he was an administrator, and so he dealt with water on the t on the landscape a lot. In fact, he in his, in the fights between Florence and Pisa, Machiavelli was actually the architect of an attempt at diverting the Arno in order to uh, in order to try and starve uh, Pisa downstream of uh, of its water. Uh, and he also thought about water a lot in terms of uh, warfare. But more importantly, Machiavelli is the is the proponent of the involvement of the um, rural populations in the architecture of the state, right? And in a way, that's what's most relevant here um, when we talk about the Republic. The Republic is essentially the, the political architecture that allows you to intermediate between individual freedom, individual liberty, and collective action. And when it comes to water, uh, society needs to exercise collective action. Things that happen in the water space, you've seen this in California, you've seen this in with Ida in New York, exceed the boundaries and the size of an individual experience, right? In order for society to manage something like Ida, or in order for society to manage something like the fires of California, it needs to organize itself. Right. And so where does the balancing between individual rights to decide things and collective action reside? Where does that balance reside? Well, it resides in the in the Republic. So, yes, I you know, my heritage has brought me to have an interest in in Republican thought. But I think actually it's the more modern experience of the United States and, and, and of America that speaks to the kinds of models that are needed to confront a ever more powerful and more present climate in our lives.
I want to come back, Julio, later in this conversation to, shall we say, the cult of individual rights and the contradictions mm-hmm. between that and water management. But you begin not in Italy and not in the United States. You begin the book in China. Uh, in um, uh, you, your first paragraph in, in, right. uh, is about the, uh, the water crashing down in the Yangtze River. Uh, and the reference in the beginning of the book is to um, is is to uh, the Three Gorges Dam, which was created by Sun Yat-sen. Why did you choose to begin the book in that sense? Yeah, I began the book in China in 2010, and both items are important, China and 2010. 2010, because by the time I get to the end of the book, uh, you know, this is not the sort of book that has a spoiler, but the 2010, 2011 years are very important. They come back to China. I'll come back to that maybe later if we have time. Um, but, But I start in China because really, you know, I argue throughout the book that, you know, the, the 20th century is a hydraulic century because of the legacy that America left around the world in the way in which it managed water right. resources. You, you indeed, uh, you're the third part of your book is called the That's right. hydraulic That's right. century. That's right. Now, the 21st century uh, will likely be again a hydraulic century, but one that will be led by China. You know, there was a time when if you asked yourself, where would I go to meet somebody who's built a gigawatt dam or a large, large piece of water infrastructure anywhere in the world, you would have come to America, the billion dollar engineers of the American 1940s and 50s, right? Well, today, you will be hard pressed to find anybody in America who's ever built a large piece of infrastructure structure like Hoover Dam or like others, right? And all that stock of infrastructure is in the past of American history, but it's very much in the present of the Chinese experience. China is still building a large fraction of its of its uh, capital infrastructure. And so if you want to go somewhere in the world to see how human society is modifying the landscape to wrestle with water in a new way or an old way, that's part of the question that the book analyzes, uh, well, you have to go to China. And Three Gorges Dam is this sort of archetype. In a way, it's the it's the piece of infrastructure that gave China the confidence to be a hydraulic state in a way. And in fact, today, China is the largest developer of water infrastructure anywhere in the world, meaning Chinese companies, Chinese finance, uh, Chinese contractors show up everywhere across Africa, Asia, Latin America, building the infrastructure of the 21st century, and particularly the water infrastructure of the 21st century, in the same way that Americans did in the 1940s, 50s, and, and 60s. Yeah, it, and so, it brings to mind uh, the movie Chinatown, which, of course, was a movie about right. water rights in, in Southern California. Um, that's right. You, you describe the dam as the essentially the quintessential example of, of 20th century architecture. And the ideologist of this, who you spend quite a lot of time both at the beginning and then at the end of the book discussing, is Sun Yat-sen. That's so right. interesting about Sun Yat-sen in terms of the history of water. Yeah, well, you know, Sun Yat-sen is interesting because for many, many reasons, he's the, you know, nominally he's the father of the Chinese state. Um, This is long before, you know, we're talking about the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. He was the first president of the new Chinese Republic in uh, in 1916, 1917. Um, And he was an intellectual and a radical, right? And, And he worked for years and years and years to overthrow the Qing the Qing government, the the, the Qing emperor, with the last emperor of China, and um, and then when he came into power, he was looking for a model uh, to kind of imagine what the landscape 
would, of China should look like in order to deliver prosperity. And the model he took, the model he had in mind, was the then rising hegemon of America. Um, in fact, he thought that if China had developed its landscape along the lines of what America had been doing, then China would have been effectively economically a new world that would have offered an enormous market to the world economy and propelled the world economy forward. Um, and he spends a fair amount of time describing this in a text called The International Development of China, which uh, where, where he describes a number of pieces of infrastructure that he literally imagines. They're not there. One of the ones he imagines is a big dam um, right. in the middle of the I, 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 I couldn't entirely tell, Julio, from your, from your book. Are you a critic of Sun Yat-sen? Do you think that he is the example of the, of the technocrat who, who tries to master nature and is the model of, of how what you call the the, the the hydraulic century, whether it's in the United States or China, failed and has resulted in our catastrophic global warming crisis of today? Well, there's a lot there. So first of all, Sun Yat-sen, no, he's not a technocrat. He never was. The Chinese Republic he tried to set up largely failed. Um, and he died, you know, having written all these ideas, but not seen them put in practice. Then Chiang Kai-shek came along. Then there was the revolution, right? So only the actual dam was built in 2009. It started building in, in the late 90s. And so he was a dreamer and a radical more than a technocrat and a um, and a uh, and a and a sort of uh, administrator, right? So in a way, no, he's not the example of of, of that. Um, but he sort of bridges the 19th century and the 20th, right? And and sort of described in his writing what people dreamed water could deliver. So he's the vehicle for a dream that people had at the beginning of this journey, at the beginning of the 20th century. Then we built it, right? Then, you know, California built its infrastructure, China built its infrastructure. And now we're in a position to evaluate with the benefit of hindsight, whether those dreams were well-founded or not. And we have to be careful to it's easy to second guess the choices that were made then. You have to remember that the life of the average person living in rural America in 1900 was not particularly pleasant and not that different from somebody living in 12th century Italy, right? And so on the one hand, all that investment and all that infrastructure did deliver security and did deliver some degree of prosperity. But we've also gotten to the end of its ability to do so, right? And uh, so what I think one of the reasons that the history of water is particularly interesting is that I think we're now at a new turning point. We will have a bunch of choices ahead of us uh, shown by the fact that the infrastructure that we built and that protected us for the better part of the 20th century is now failing. It's failing California with the uh, fires and it's failing in New York with the uh, with the storms like Ida. And so I, I think it's important to look at you know moments in time when people had dreams of what the future could look like, and then we have the benefit of hindsight and see what actually happened. That's the gift of the Sunyat Sen story. And I think it's a very instructive story for, for our present moment. Well, let's try and expand because the book is is very broad. It's not just about Sun Yat-sen and it's not just about the 20th century. It's made up of four sections. And you might talk very briefly about the origins of water in a historical sense, as briefly as you can, Julia, because I want to get on to, I want to come back to some other contemporary themes that you deal sure. with in the book. But what are the origins of water in your sense, in the way in which water you present water, uh, the story of water, as, as a political event in terms of the relationship between the state uh, and the republic. 
Yeah, well, very briefly, I mean, I, you know, we've been on the planet for 300,000 years of that time, most of it, we were nomads. 10,000 years ago, we decided, let's say, you know, we didn't actually decide, but we became sedentary. Um, and we suddenly realized that around us, water moved, right? We stood still in a world of moving water, as it were. And, and that's really the beginning of that origin story. It's this kind of Faustian bargain that we engage in, in trying to create a stationary way, world around us to allow communities to stay in one place and build a, a life. And through the chapters of the first part, I sort of dissect various steps through which different societies confront this problem, fail, retry, and so forth and so on. There's the story of the of the collapse of the Bronze Age. That's a climate and water story. There's the story of the societies of the Levant. There's the story uh, uh, you know, of the Mesopotamian societies that sort of emerged from the Euphrates and the Tigris. The core, the, the sort of principal gift of that first part of the book, though, is the political tradition that comes out of the Mediterranean, so out of Greece and classical Greece and, and Rome. And the point I, I make in, in the book is that there's a very tight connection between the hydrology that Greek and Roman and their Mediterranean farmers face, which is one that allows them to essentially have rain-fed rain -fed cultures for the most part, and their ability to build a political system that's broadly speaking focused on delivering liberty to at least some people, and that it's based on some form of what today we would call enfranchisement. And so that's really the first part of the book is how did we go from standing still 10,000 years ago to essentially coming up with ideas like democracy like a republic, okay? forms of self-government that were a mechanism to organize people to live together in a moving and difficult landscape. Uh, when I was reading the book, I, I thought about the, the 2017 movie, The Shape mm -hmm. of Water, which is a kind of a metaphysical celebration in some ways of water. Um, yeah. In this first part, in the origins, was water treated in a metaphysical way? Was well, it associated with religion and absolutely. faith and the yeah. gods? Yes. I mean, one of the sort of sub-themes that I analyzed throughout is how did people conceptualize the, um, their relationship with water? And for a very, very long time, for the vast majority of history, of, of you know, since we started writing anything, uh, water, like most uh, climate phenomena, like most natural phenomena, was essentially part of a pantheistic view of the world, right? Was a was a way of, you know, was interpreted as a reflection of the you know, will of gods. I mean, you, you know, if you've read Homer, you'll find, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, Scamander River that fights with, Achil with Achilles. Um, you know, if you read Ovid, you find Achilles, the river god, and so forth and so on, right? So it's always per per personified. Um, and in fact, one of the interesting things I stumbled on as I was starting to write this book is the, it's a huge portfolio of, of narratives and stories and myths that incorporate water, yeah, from the obvious story of Noah and the flood to, you know, the Unopachakuti flood in, of the Incas to the old tales of, of, uh, of the Native American tribes and to the Norse gods and so forth and so on. So it was always sort of mythologized. One of the big turning points in the journey towards uh, individual and individualistic um, political construction is the turning point that we have with the Abramitic religions, which essentially demythologize the world. Um, and so suddenly you don't have, you no longer have, you know, the God represented by water. You get to a higher level of abstraction. That level of abstraction is then reflected in the development of, uh, of laws. So one of the most interesting texts that you can read for water is the, is the Old Testament. Um, 
because it has, and it, you know, these were people that wrote in conditions of extreme water scarcity. And so a lot of the stories of the Old Testament reflect the way in which the patriarchal um, generations dealt with water scarcity and extracted norms of ethics, norms of morals, and norms of behavior out of it. So, you know, part of the first part is also putting the building blocks of, you know, if I want to argue that water is a political issue, I have to argue that it's an ethical issue, that it's a moral issue, that is a philosophical issue, right? And, and the function of that first part of the book is to lay out in a historical way those building blocks. You do it in a very interesting way. We'll come back to the Middle East later. Uh, the second period, uh, part two of the book, between origins and our 20th century, hydraulic hydraulic. Uh, uh, century is a thousand years convergence. What happened in those thousand years? Very briefly, uh, sure. Julia, just to give us the, uh, a more complete history of water. Well, so, you know, the, the, the story of the last thousand years is still convergence because we ended up having exactly the same picture and the same way of dealing and managing water everywhere in the world, whereas in antiquity that wasn't the case. And the, the way, the root of that, conver the, the kind of journey of that convergence is really a story of institutions and particularly legal and political institutions. So the two protagonists of this story are the legal system, which is actually probably the most uniform of institutions that human societies have today. The origins of all, pretty much all legal systems in the world uh, is essentially Roman, uh, Roman law. Uh, even the common law of the Anglo-Saxon world is, is heavily, heavily imbued with, with Roman jurisprudence and tradition. And so that's one part of the story. And, and what the book talks about is the way in which these um, legal principles then get intersect the, the rise of the nation state and therefore international relations and, and so forth and so on. And a good example of that is the story, which we can get into if you want, of how you know Washington's concern with a water company ends up triggering a series of events that lands with the Philadelphia Convention and the birth of the U.S. Constitution. The other protagonist of this convergence is the, is the re-emergence of the idea of a republic, right? Self-government was not the dominant form of government for most of the Middle Ages and much of the, uh, and much of mo the modern period, if you will, right? If you think about the time when the United States was in the midst of its civil war, the case for a republic was a pretty weak one in the world. That was the only large republic in the world and it wasn't doing very well in 18, circa 1864-65, right? And so now fast forward uh, uh, a century, most countries in the world declare themselves some form of a republic. China is a republic. It's not a democratic republic, but it's a republic. The United States is a republic. Italy, where I come from, is a republic. And even monarchies like the United Kingdom, where I live and where you came from, whilst they're not republics, they have absorbed over the course of the 19th and early 20th century a number of principles that are of that sort of republican uh, tradition. Um, so that's the convergence. It's the, conver it's the legal and institutional convergence that set the stage for everybody being able to think about water roughly in the same way. That's not true in details, but, but at, the, at the level at which we're talking about, it's, uh, it's certainly true. Let's return, uh, Julio, to the Middle East. Um, uh, you mentioned it earlier in terms of the Bible, but in the 20th century, I was struck with a couple of interesting examples in your book. The first is the failure of the Aswan Dam and of NASA, uh, the uh, authoritarian, sort of, I guess, enlightened authoritarian uh, leader of, of post-war Egypt as being an example of someone who, who screwed up um, the management of water. And also the Arab Spring and how you see the Arab Spring, you note about the origins of the revolt in Tunisia, 
that you see that as an incident in the history of water. Yeah. Well, the Middle East is inevitably a place where water, because it's so scarce, becomes such a salient political issue. In the book, I, I try to make the case that it's it's it weaves its way through a number of kind of geopolitical issues. One is independentist movement. Nasser was a pan-Arabist. Uh, he's a complicated character. I again, I don't know whether he. It, it's fair to say that he failed. He suddenly transformed his country. Uh, now, one the judgment of whether that was a thing or a bad thing is a difficult one, but he certainly transformed it. I mean, the large Aswan Dam literally transformed the Nile, right? I mean, the Egyptian civilization lived on a flooding Nile for 3,000 years. He turned the Nile into a canal, right? And so uh, so that makes made a huge difference. The Middle East also has the profound role in hooking up the history of water to the story of oil. Which is another important theme in the in the story, but you know one of the things that emerges from the story of water over and over again is that if you want to look for symptoms of our failures to manage water correctly, you have to go and look at the most vulnerable. And the Middle East is a place where there are many, many people who are very vulnerable to water situations, but vulnerable in ways that you might not expect. And so the reason I emphasize the 2010, I start the book in 2010 and I roughly ended in 2010, 2011, is because in 2010, 2011, there was a very large climatic phenomenon, an El Nino, a very strong El Nino, which resulted in uh, droughts and fires akin to those that are happening in California, out in Russia and then in China, that had an extraordinary effect on the price of commodities, and particularly the price of wheat, because a lot of production went up in smoke. Uh, ironically, the impact on the prices were far greater than the impact on production because of speculators, right? So often the story of water is one where we are the cause of the problem, not just water itself. Those commodity prices then transmitted themselves through the food supplies into the Middle East and weakened significantly the states because many of the states of the Middle East and North Africa uh, essentially have to spend a lot of money to subsidize food for their populations. And you, you could argue that had it, that wasn't the cause of the Arab Spring. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously right. the, the plight for freedom against dictators was the cause of the Arab Spring, but it was a significant uh, uh, stressor, right? And so then you can you can sort of follow the road that this uh, the stress took across North Africa and the Middle East. And to Syria. Um, and to Syria and so forth. The New York Times. Influential New York Times columnist um, Thomas Friedman uh, wrote some powerful pieces about the connection right. between water and the Syrian civil war. Your your final section is rather ominously titled "Finale," which I hope it's not <laughs> the final finale. Um, very briefly, um, Julio, you seem to suggest both in the book with a. Uh, a kind of critique, I guess, implicit of individual rights, and also on your, in your blog about, uh, in one recent piece, the Environmental Republic, that there may be an incompatibility between modern republican democracy with its focus on individual rights and successful management of water. Is that fair? Well, I think that there's an incompatibility between the liberal narrative of what a republic is and uh, and and the management of our climate predicament more broadly and water is the expression of the climate system so if you're concerned about changing climate you're really concerned about changes in in water right and it's not so much a critique of the republic as of the liberal narrative that puts the preeminence of individual of individual rights above every everything else and particularly the narrative that says that these individual rights this this individual freedom is about freedom
freedom from interference. And I actually think that we have to have a discussion about a, a constructive freedom that is not just about freedom for interference, but is also participation in a common project. Because the reality is the climate system is changing and the water environment that we live in will make all of us once again much more susceptible to, uh, to its expression, to problems of flooding and droughts. And, and it will just make our security diminished. And the only way we manage that is through a collective project. Now, people bristle and sometimes find it difficult to think about collective action because they think, well, the, this is a route to socialism or it's a route to authoritarian control or it's a route to, um, to overreach of the central government. And it doesn't need to be if you have a healthy, robust republican system that allows individuals to author their life. And so I think that the question of Republican freedom and of the Republican state um, is a really important one. And I think that we've sort of fooled ourselves into thinking that we're just a collection of free individuals. We are a collection of free individuals that participate in a collective project. And uh, nature and climate will show us how collective that is. Have you been influenced in all this by a particular political philosopher or a tradition? Well, you know, Quentin Skinner and, you know, uh, Petit, you know, the sort of neo-Republicans, if you will, the, the modern day Republican thinkers are have been very influential. They don't talk as much about, and that's why, incidentally, I end up talking a lot about Machiavelli in the, in the, in the book, because Machiavelli is sort of the, you know, the, the root of that way of thinking. Um, they don't tackle environmental issues as much in their writing. But I, I actually think that that framing of Republican freedom, of a third freedom, right? The, the freedom beyond the two freedoms of Isaac Berlin's famous essay mm. uh, are, is really where the, the next wave of environment, environmentalism needs to go. I think environmentalism is, is, is kind of captive right now to a technocratic and too scientific view of that. I'm a scientist by training. I'm a climate scientist by training. But the answer to the question of modernity doesn't doesn't lie in science, lies in figuring out how we renew our compact. We had Michael Sandel on the show a few months ago, one of the leading communitarian thinkers, sure. very influenced by people like Charles Taylor. I assume that that's a tradition that you also think is important in rethinking environmental politics. Absolutely. And I, I think it's, um, you know, those thinkers, uh, Taylor and others, uh, you know, f finding a way of bringing the environmental movement into that discourse is going to be really important. Right now, it's not. I mean, the majority of it is not. And I think that's where, that's where its next evolution needs to be. You're talking to me, of course, uh, Julia, from London. Uh, the Green parties have much more. They're not powerful in the UK, but they are in Germany and other parts right. of Europe. Um, are there examples of political movements, leaders, parties that you think can be helping to rethink our nature of the republic? in the context of our environmental crisis? Well, you know, I, I wish I wish there were. That's partly, you know, my engagement with this and my thinking about this in the articles that you, you mentioned. I wrote them because I'm not sure there are. I mean, the one observation I have is that in democracies, environmental uh, discourse is becoming a very powerful mobilizing force. That's for sure. And that's where the rise of the Green parties uh, comes from. But it's a, it's a mobilizing force with a remarkably thin intellectual framing, uh, in my view. 
Uh, and so I think that there is this problem where, you know, we, we sort of, the answer seems to be, well, listen to the science and find solutions in the right technologies. And I, I think, you know, living within, living as sedentary civilizations within a moving environment is a question of a constitutional compact, which requires a lot of debate that's not scientific. It's about what do we want our environment to look like. And I'm afraid, you know, the, the, the most cogent, the, the clearest articulations, unfortunately, of um, kind of an environmental agenda in service of a political agenda doesn't currently come from democracies, comes from China. Uh, and and yeah, that's I, I want to come back to China, but very briefly on the technology front, Julio, I had Yanis uh, Varoufakis, the ex-Greek uh, foreign minister on the show earlier this week. He has a, a science fictional utopia just out. Uh, and I, I did a show earlier with a, a London-based technologist who also talked about the economist Eleanor Ostrom and the oh, ideal yeah. of the commons, which is being reimagined, particularly by peer-to-peer -peer, uh, digital thinkers and, and engineers. D does digital help here? I mean, obviously, digital can't change the nature of water itself, but is the disruptive nature of the digital revolution, can that help rethink the environment too? Um, maybe. I mean, I think that there's elements of it that are, you know, we are in a golden age of earth monitoring. Uh, we are producing an unprecedented amount of uh, information about the state of the planet. And we are capable of analyses of this information that haven't been possible before through machine learning and other, and other instruments. And also so the, the sort of the peer-to-peer the, the -peer architecture that's being built with, and the peer to peer with, with, with uh, blockchain and other right. digital currencies that are, uh -huh. are, are sort of over, uh, overflowing into the environment yeah. too in sharing energy and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, but they contain a problem, which is they tend to be, I don't think they have to be, but I think they tend to have a sort of libertarian underpinning. They mm. tend to lead to libertarian thinking. I mean, why, in some ways, I'm arguing, I'm an anti libertarian in the sense. I think that we live in a collective project that require collective institutions. I I don't believe that this is about just empowering the individual. Uh, and I'll give you a very banal example of this. You know, the problem is that water is an exercise in mutualizing risks. You know, we all pay together. You know, I live on a hill here in London. The cost of delivering my water here is higher than delivering it further down the hill. But we all pay the same rate because a public utility, or a private utility in this case, mutualizes the cost of delivery. Now, that's a small example, but it, it reflects a bigger point, which is that the landscape is... Um, you know, is a collective experience. You know, so for example, economists like Henry George or sort of the neoclassical economists have started thinking about uh, the question of um, of how do you tax rents. To me, that's a a very productive, um, a very productive uh, kind of line of thinking, rather than you know thinking about marginalism and and sort of in, so, solely individual action. It's great stuff, Julia. You begin the book, as I said, uh, uh, with reference to. Uh... Uh, to Sun Yat-sen, and you end the book on a note about contemporary China. You say the future of the history of water is really the history of China and its approach to the environment. You suggest you're perhaps a little bit more optimistic than many other Western liberals. Why? Why? Why can we? Why can we be reasonably optimistic that the Chinese, and it will of course be the 21st century, will ultimately be a Chinese century? 
why the Chinese will manage this in some ways perhaps better than the Americans? Oh, I don't know that they will. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know that I'm optimistic. I, it's factual. I mean, I think that it's unavoidable um, because most of the world's savings, uh, you know. But you're, are you're not treating so many people in the West, particularly in America, treat China as a catastrophe, as a dystopia, as this future authoritarian menace. You're not presenting no, it in that No, way. no, I, well, because that's right, because I, I don't presume to, you know, I, I think that, for example, I worked in Ethiopia for many years, and most of the infrastructure that I saw build up in Ethiopia over the years that I worked there was delivered by China. And there's no question that that infrastructure delivered benefits and delivered benefits to people that live there. There's no question it also had, you know, impacts on, on other people and impacts on the environment. But on balance, it was a modernization story. Was it the best modernization that I could imagine? Maybe not, but it certainly improved the lives of people. So I'm, you know, I, I think it's a nuanced, we, we have to take a nuanced view to what China can do. I also think having worked in China with Chinese colleagues and others that there's ample room for debate as to what that legacy should be. Um, and, you know, they are deploying the cash, they're deploying the capital, they're deploying the expertise, but there's a lot of room for getting different answers out of what they what they are proposing to do and so i think engagement is important but deep political and thoughtful engagement not just technocratic engagement um, and in particular if we want an alternative to that model we need to think beyond technology and we need to think about what is the constitutional compact for an environmental republic in the 21st century that will make people dream again you know that's where i think the the heart of the story lies we need to dream again, like in the shape of water, about water in the environment. It's great stuff, Julia. You, of all environmental writers, you're the most philosophical and political. Your new book, Water, a Biography, um, is, is, is a really fascinating, provocative read. Congratulations on the book. You. Uh, you're talking to me from London, unfortunately near the Arsenal Stadium. Uh, <laughs> so you don't really want to go out and look at that awful thing. Um, what else should people be reading in these strange times where we're still uh, worried about COVID and too much water or not enough water? What book is on your mind or books, Julio, apart well, from uh, your book, History of Water? Yeah, well, um, uh, two blue books actually come to mind that I discovered in the course of writing this one, which I found fascinating and, 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 and evocative. One is... Uh, um, a book by Francis Perkins, who used to be the Secretary of Labor of Roosevelt, the longest serving Secretary of Labor in the history of, uh, of, uh, of America, the architect of Social Security. But she wrote this book called uh, The Roosevelt I Knew. Uh, which is sort of a biography of Roosevelt, but from a first-hand perspective, and it's fascinating. And actually, I got a lot of insight on what Roosevelt cared about in terms of water from that. And the second, I would suggest, is a portrait of myself by Margaret Burke White, the great photographer, who did the very first cover of Life magazine, which was a dam on the Missouri River. Uh, and again, I think it's uh, the, both books are incredibly evocative of an era when America was leading the world in designing its landscape. Uh, and I think they provoke us to think about what the next republic needs to do. Well, water's everywhere in your book, in the world. Uh, congratulations, as I said, Giulio uh, uh, Bacialetti, for a lovely uh, discussion on water, very provocative. Keep well. Thank uh, you. And we will talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Andrew.